Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Game of Thrones, The Reign of David. This series looks at the reign of David in the books of 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles to learn from David's victories and failures to see how we can walk more closely with Jesus. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Selah. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. In uh, the early 400s, the great uh, early church leader known that we know as St. Augustine lay dying in his room. And there in his room, on the wall next to his bed, he had his favorite psalm. St. Augustine practiced going through the book of Psalms each week. It was regularly part of his life and part of the monastic order that was founded after him. But his favorite psalm that he read very frequently was Psalm 32. And he had it inscribed on the wall, written there, so he could read it as he lay dying. So that brings up an interesting question. Of all the things that Augustine could have had there, why would he have this scripture? Why not in the book of Romans, Augustine had become a believer by hearing some children uh, chanting a song, take and read, take and read, and he opened up a Bible and it fell open in Romans chapter 13. Why not be reading that passage? Why is it Psalm 32? Well, it's because of the power of the gospel that's proclaimed in this psalm. Again, this is the end of our cycle regarding David's sin because tradition tells us this was what David wrote at the end of his sin and trying to hide it and then being rebuked and confronted and his repentance and confession. And then this is the resultant psalm that comes at the very end of it. So we're going to dive in today and look at the joy of confession 
and forgiveness. Now, the first thing is, notice here, the psalm is telling us how blessed is a certain person. Notice in verses 1 and 2, it begins with this word, blessed. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven. And really, it's almost blessed is he whose sins are covered. It's because of the parallelism of Hebrew. And then blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. So it's telling us that there is this blessedness, this joy that comes to a certain person. And this is, in fact, one of the very key themes of the entire book of Psalms. The whole book of Psalms begins with the word blessed. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And it's uh, interesting, the Hebrew word for blessed begins with the first letter in their alphabet, Ashrei. So it's oftentimes used when they do these acrostic psalms throughout. It'll begin by saying, here's the path to blessing, is how that psalm will begin. And so this is a key concept in the book of Psalms, really more than any other book, is what the blessed life looks like. And that's the topic here in Psalm 32. But the specific blessedness that is in view in Psalm 32 is the blessedness of having our sins forgiven. And notice here in verses 1 and 2, it says, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, and then blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. There's a parallelism that goes on. Remember, Hebrew poetry oftentimes says something in the first part of a line, and then it repeats it and carries it a little further. So it tells us, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven. And what I mean by that is the one whose sins are covered over. And then David here does kind of a double parallelism. He says, I'm going to kind of repeat the idea again, because this is so important. Blessed is the man who the sin the Lord does not count against him. You have sins, but God has forgiven them. You have these sins, but God has covered them over. You have these sins, but the Lord does not count them against you. So he repeats three times that here's the blessing that's in view. Your sins, your transgressions, your iniquities, they are forgiven, they are blotted out and covered over, they are not counted against this person. This is the blessing that is here. And friends, we need to make sure we learn to read the Scripture right. This blessing is the gospel. That's why Augustine had it on its wall. Because this psalm is pure gospel. It speaks to us of who Jesus is and what he has done. And you need not just take my word for it. Consider what the psalm is saying. How is it that our sins are forgiven? How is it that they are covered over and removed? How is it that the Lord does not count them against us? It's because of the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not because I say so. The Holy Spirit actually tells us this through the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4. In Romans 4, Paul is ending his discussion and laying out of the law and the gospel. And in chapter 4, verses 6 to 8, he says this, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Paul is proving the gospel of justification by grace alone, 
through faith alone, in Christ alone. And in doing so, he's looked at the Old Testament and shown that we are all under sin. There is no way that our works will provide the path to salvation. In fact, all our works can do is bring us condemnation. Because we, like David, are in the place that we stand shocked at what we will do and what we will think and what we will say. And we stand like David when we have understood Psalm 51 to say that my sin problem is not merely external. It's not a few actions. It's something that's down in my DNA. I was conceived in sin. That's true lot of all humanity. And so Paul has been speaking about this and he's now turned to the gospel and he begins by looking and saying, don't you understand, the gospel's not something new. This is what Abraham heard. When Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited as righteousness. He didn't have righteousness on his own, but God counted righteousness to him because he believed. Not because he did something, but because he believed. And so Paul now turns around and says, the same thing is true regarding David. And so he says it was not only Abraham, it was also David that saw this gospel that came. And notice in his introduction here, he says he's, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. That you not only have sins forgiven, taken away, and he's taken a cue here where David says that blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. It, his sins are not credited to his account, but in fact they're removed from his account. And they, uh, Paul is telling us, and the opposite is also done. Jesus takes our sin away, and then he credits his righteousness to our account, and he says that's the blessedness that David has in view. The blessedness of righteousness credited apart from our works, that we are forgiven, that we are covered over, that what we have done wrong is not counted against us. And friends, there is no greater blessing and joy in life than knowing our sins are forgiven by God and we are given the righteousness of Christ. Do you see why? When Augustine lays there dying, this is what he needs to know more than anything else because he's not going to stand in front of God clothed in his righteousness, but clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Augustine is so aware of how deep his sin has gone. He saw like David did. If you've ever read Augustine's Confessions, and he's got the famous story where as a young man, he says, we were out and we went into a man's pear orchard. And it wasn't even a good orchard for pears. They were, they were really not even good pears. And we stole those pears. And we didn't even eat the mediocre pears we had stolen. We just threw them away. And why did we do that? Because we were full of sin. It was for nothing other than the pure joy of doing what we weren't supposed to do. And Augustine said, so I saw how deep my sin problem was. And when you realize that, like David did, and like Augustine did, and like Paul did, when we see that, what you want to hear as you lay dying is, blessed is he whose sins are forgiven, whose transgressions are covered over, who said the Lord will never count against him. 
That is true blessing and true joy. And if you don't hear anything else I say today, take that. Keep that. Meditate on that. That is blessing. Nothing else in life matters. If you have this, you have everything. And if you don't have this, you have nothing. Nothing. Now, the interesting thing is, David gives us the path into experiencing that blessedness and experiencing that joy. And that path is the joy of confession. Now, how's that for a phrase that our culture, two words that we never put together? Joy and confession. We, we don't put those together, do we? See, we think confession, oh, I don't want to talk about that. But see, David tells us it actually comes through confession. Now, here's why. He begins by talking about the agony of deceit. Y'all remember, if you're a little bit older, remember when ABC used to have that wide world of sports TV show, and they had the, all the guys winning in the Olympics and doing something, they'd say, you know, the thrill of victory. And then that poor guy who was going down the hill, and he crashed into the thing and fell down, and he tumbled down, and every week you would watch this guy's bad tape, his, the worst moment of his life being replayed, and they would say, and the agony of defeat. I always felt so sorry for that dude. It's like, you know, he probably had a thousand good jumps. They took the one that went wrong and they replayed it week after week. Well, there is an agony, not of defeat, but of deceit. Did you notice in the first two verses that I had up there where David talks three times about being blessed, he ends with this strange phrase. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. And blessed is he whose sin is covered in. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. And then this weird phrase, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Why would you say that? Well, it can't be that you're therefore blessed because you don't have sin. The whole point is you're blessed because the sin you have has been forgiven and covered and not counted against you. So David can't be now turning around saying, and, and this is going on because you don't have sin down in your heart. So David's seeing that it's deep down inside him. So what is it that he's talking about? There's a specific deceit, and that deceit regards whether or not we confess our sin. Are we acknowledging our sin? Now, why do I say this? Because notice immediately what he does in the next verses. In whose spirit is no deceit. Very next words. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. And he describes that further in verse 4. And then in verse 5, he does this reversal. He says, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. So notice, I kept silent is the opposite of, in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin. And not covering up is the opposite of what God does in verse 1. The blessed man has his sins covered by the Lord. And David's saying, in essence, but I was trying to cover them up. And then finally, I just threw my sins open. And then that's when forgiveness came to me. And he says, I confessed my transgressions to the Lord. So the deceit in view in verse 2 is specifically the deceit of trying to cover up our sin. The, the blessed man does not have deceit in his spirit. He recognizes his sin. He's not 
uh, standing there clean before God because he has no sin, but because he's recognized how much sin he has. He's not standing there with his sin covered because he covered it, but rather he laid it open and then God covered the sin. That's what David is talking about. The silence that he mentions in verse 3 when he says, when I kept silent, is uh, one commentator put it this way. Silence is the performance of stubborn pride or a spirit struck dumb for fear of being found out. It's the way of Adam hiding from the presence of God. Worst of all, the silence is the rejection of grace. See, that's what David was saying. There was a time I stood there and I was silent. He was like the guy, you remember the old phrase, you know, whistling in the dark, you know, people whistling past the graveyard, as if I just whistle and kind of hum a tune, whatever's in that graveyard that's scaring me somehow not going to come out. And that's what David's doing. He's whistling past his sin. He's hoping that maybe God will forget about it, that God will overlook it, that it'll just, we'll just skip past this whole deal. And that silence is itself a rejection of grace. He's like Adam hiding in the bushes, thinking that somehow that's going to hide his sin from God. But see, that's not the path to blessedness and forgiveness. In the New Testament, we're told the same thing. If you ever thought about it this way, in 1 John chapter 1, Tom actually read uh, the verses just after this in our worship this morning. 1 John 1.8, John says this, If we claim to be without sin, we what? deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see the the setup that John's got, which is the same setup David's doing here in Psalm 32. There's two paths. There's the path of deceit, which says, I don't really have a sin problem. And then there's the path of confession and acknowledgement of the truth, which is, I have a big sin problem. The one path says, I'm going to get there by my own works. The other path says, I have no hope based on my works. My only hope is God's mercy in Jesus Christ and Christ's works being credited to me. Which is why you can see Paul brought it up and said, this is... David testifying of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And notice David goes on in Psalm 32, and he speaks about the agony and the misery that arise from this deceit. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And then that little word, Selah, which you may have noticed I kept reading, it's, it's there in the Hebrew. We're not 100% sure what it means, but what it seems to do in the Psalms is it's kind of a pause. Stop and think about it. So David's come here and he says, I want you to think about this. I've told you that it, it's blessed to be forgiven, but now I'm describing what happens when you won't confess. And here's what happens when you don't confess. Your bones waste away. You groan all day long, day and night. It's heavy upon you, God's hand. And your strength is sapped like a tree out there in the summer. All of this is a picture of it is not good. 
it is bad. And you remember, this is the opposite. At the beginning of the book of Psalms, the blessed man is like a tree by streams of water. So even if it's hot and it's in the summer, there's always water to drink. David here is saying, when I wasn't confessing, man, I'm like a tree out in the middle of nowhere, and I am dying. I am, I, I am wasting away. All of these are graphic, physical terms. He's using poetry here, and he's saying, I was feeling the effect of trying to cover my own sin. And the more I tried to cover it, the worse it got for me. Unconfessed sin leads to spiritual stress, which often has devastating emotional and physical effects. Think back in your own life. Have you ever had something that was just weighing down and you had a guilty conscience and you are struggling? And it's like, if I eat, it doesn't digest right. I am irritable. I am a mess to be around. And then I lay down at night and what happens? I can't even sleep, which makes me even in a worse mood tomorrow. And David says, that's the way I was. Everything was just falling apart inside and out. I was feeling the effects of this that's going on because that's what happens when we, forget, when we try to cover our own sin, when we are not willing to acknowledge it, when we are in that deceit and it is settled into our spirit, we are whistling past the graveyard, but that's not working. It's not working. So what happens? Well, David then moves after that Selah, and he says, think about that. And he moves on, and he says, there's a joy of coming clean in confession. Then, after this had happened, I was laying there, everything was done, and we know, of course, Nathan comes to him. But do you see how David said, I'm so glad Nathan came, because everything was falling apart for me. And then, Lord, you sent your word, it cut to the quick, and here's what happened. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So notice, we'd had the threefold statement about blessedness. Here we get three statements about confession. I acknowledge my sin. I do not cover up my iniquity. I will confess my sin to you. Like there have been three statements of blessedness, there's three statements regarding confession. David wants us to understand, here's the path into this, to experiencing the forgiveness of God is confessing your sin. It's not hiding it, it's not covering it up. Notice how full this confession is. He refers to his sin, he refers to his iniquity, he refers to his transgressions. This is like we saw in Psalm 51 last week. David uses all these different Hebrew words regarding the ways we fall short of what God calls us to do because he's saying this is a full confession of sin. I'm not trying to minimize it, I'm laying it open as it is. And if you want to read what he's talking about there in verses 4 and 5, go read Psalm 51. That's what he does there in Psalm 51. It is a full confession. And this is what brings forgiveness. He said, I did all of this, and you forgave my sin. You can, you can almost hear David breathing the sigh of relief. Because what he has discovered is this is the sign of a wise and contrite heart. Remember Psalm 51, he says, what you're looking for, God, is a heart that's contrite before you. Well, the, the first sign of wisdom, the first sign of contrition is that we understand our sin. St. Augustine, who meditated on the psalm so much, said the beginning of wisdom is to know oneself to be a sinner. 
That's where wisdom begins. I've been in a conversation with a friend recently, and, and one of the things I mentioned was how we are all fallen and broken, and the person said, I don't really think we're fallen and broken which is kind of interesting. We're, we're continuing our discussion, but it's kind of funny because G.K. Kesterton uh, about a century ago was said to have quipped the one doctrine you don't have to prove is the doctrine of original sin. Everybody takes it for granted. Just look around you. There's sin everywhere. It's a mess out there. And wisdom is realizing that's not somebody else's problem. That's my problem. And when we open up and we confess, I love how quick it is, you forgave my sin. There's no dragging it out, it's quick. Just like it was in 2 Samuel 12 when Nathan came to him. And notice the effect here. I didn't cover my iniquity. When I no longer covered it, who did cover it? God. See, there's two options. You have sin and so do I. The only question is, will I try to cover my own sin in which case God says, good luck. Or do I let my sin be open and God says, okay, now I'll cover the sin for you. And see, you and I don't cover sin. For those of you who have been parents, you ever watch when your kids try to cover up something that they've done and how good are they at it? About a million times better than you and I are at covering our sin up. It stands open before God. And just like when as a parent or a grandparent, I look at them and I say, what are you doing? What, what are you doing? I mean, when I was a kid, my dad sent me outside to mow. I was like eight or nine years old. We lived up in Chicago at the time. And I was sent outside to mow. And my dad told me before I went out, son, before you go out, make sure you check the yard, make sure everything's picked up. I think there's a hose out there. I had the attention span of most eight-year-old boys, which means something short of a titsy fly. And so I got outside, put the gas in the lawnmower, cranked it up, took off driving, and pretty soon heard this awful clutter as I ran over the hose. And it got all wrapped up in the thing. My dad heard it from inside. He walked out, and he said, did you look in the yard like I told you to? And I said, somebody threw the hose in front of me. Honest to God. At which point my dad looked at me like, were you dropped on your head a lot by your mother when I was away at work or what? But see, that, is that not what we do? That, that's me covering my sin. Somebody just you know, threw the hose right in front of the lawnmower. And my dad, thankfully, just kind of laughed at me and said, what? <laughs> they just were like there and threw the hose out in front of you, huh? Ah, that's what I'm going with, Dad. It's the best thing I got right now. David says, that's what I was doing. And it just kept eating away at me. And then when I finally came clean, you came in and you covered my sin for me. And you didn't just cover it up the paltry way I did. It was covered. It was taken away. It was never remembered or put against my account. That, friends, is the gospel. So David then goes on, and because he's told us again, say la. He's saying, consider this. This is what it means. Which way do you want? The way of deceit? Or the way of truth and confession? The way of hiding and trying to cover your own sin? Or the way of confessing and letting God cover it? And he turns and he says that what he's telling us to do is there is a joy of refuge in God. There's a joy that comes from fleeing to God rather than hiding from God. This is verses 6 and 7. Therefore, in light of what I've just told you, 
Let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. And then another Selah. So think about what I'm saying here. And what he's telling us is, flee to God rather than away from God. Let everyone who's godly pray to you while you can be found. Because then when the mighty waters rise, they're not going to reach that godly one. I used to misread this when I was younger because I was pretty legalistic. And I wanted to say, if you don't reach out to God today, the waters might rise and you won't be able to reach out to him tomorrow. That's not what the verse is saying. What it's saying is, is reach out to God because waters are going to rise. And you want to be found in the refuge of Christ Jesus when the waters rise. You don't want to be out there on your own. If you want to think of it in terms of Noah and the ark, you want to be inside the ark, not outside the ark. And friends, there is a day coming when we are going to need to be in Jesus Christ. There is a day when God will call sin to account. And on that day, when those waters rise, there is only one place of refuge. And that is in Jesus Christ. Because there is not enough righteousness in you and I, not even close, to stand the judgment and the justice of God. But Christ is more than enough. And the same thing is even true in life. Life has a way of coming after you and I. And David says, you want to be found in Christ. You want to be there. You don't want to be trying to do this on your own. When those waters are rising, make sure you are in Him. Flee to Him now because joy is found in going to God, not running from God. It's the same experience again that Adam had in the garden. It's the same experience that Abraham had all down through history. When you've been caught and the mower is chewing up the hose, David's saying, don't be silly. Don't come up with something dumb. Go to your father. Admit what's going on. He will forgive you. He will be your refuge. And there is only one refuge from the justice of God. Did, did you hear this morning? I was talking with two of my grandsons. As we were singing, let us love and sing and wonder, and it talks about he has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. You remember when God gave the commandments to Moses and just, just a fraction of God's holiness was seen, and what was everybody's response? Yeah, you go up there, Moses. Just let us know how it goes. Friends, that was just that was a fraction of what it will be. In Revelation, it says... When God's justice seen, all of creation is even fleeing away from the holiness of God. And on that day, there will only be one refuge. There will be no other. But if you are in Christ, the holiness of God will be a crown of blessing rather than something to fear. It will reverberate through you and I. We will be filled with glory, but only if we are in Christ. And so David then finally speaks of the joy of an unfettered relationship with God. There's the joy of coming clean, the joy of finding our refuge in God, and then the joy of an unfettered relationship. In verse 8 and 9, and there's arguments between scholars on whether 
whether David is speaking or God is speaking, and you can't tell from the Hebrew any more than you can from the English when he says, I will instruct you, is this David saying, in light of everything I've learned, I'm going to give you some advice here, or is it God speaking through David to tell him regarding the tr- to speak to us regarding the truth? I think it's probably God by the way that he speaks here, but it could be either. But the point is the same. The point is that God wants us to have not only forgiveness, but an unfettered fellowship with him because God says, I'll instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I'll counsel you and watch over you. Don't be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but have to be controlled by a bitter or bridle. If you think of a donkey, the only way to get it where it needs to go is you got to put a bridle in it. You got to lead it along. Half the time you got to beat on it. God is saying here, look, this is what David had to go through. David had to go through all the stuff, and I had to send Nathan. I had to buffet him. He had to go through feeling like his bones were wasted away and all of these problems. Don't be like a dumb animal that has to be forced to do what's right. I want to speak to you. I want to guide you. My eye is on you. It's watching over you. Be a person who hears and responds. I don't want to use bit and bridle. I don't want to use whip. I don't want sin to have its consequences in your life. Better that you simply hear and respond. And so we should be the opposite of those animals because the child of God should have close daily communion with God, pouring out our hearts to him, confessing our sins, and receiving his words of assurance and his words of guidance. That's what is God's promise to every one of us in this room. If you are a believer, this is not reserved for a few. It's not for those who are super spiritual and you walk with Jesus 20 years and fasted enough and shaved your head some weird way. If you're a child of God, God says, I want to have a relationship with you where each and every day we talk. Each and every day you're hearing my word. Each, I'm guiding your steps day by day by day. Even when you don't realize that I'm guiding your steps and I don't have to do it by bit and bridle because you are walking in an unfettered relationship with me. That is God's promise. And friends, that's joy. Far better than being a stupid mule that God has to use a whip, use a bit, use a bridle to get us back on the path. Far better that we're just hearing from the Spirit. But the path to doing that is we're openly confessing our sins before Him. Then the final area that he goes into and the psalm is the joy of God's unfailing love. And he says, Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. See, the wicked are those who don't confess their sins. And so their lives are surrounded by woe. Remember back to verses 3 and 4. This is what he's talking about. If you're the kind of person who will not acknowledge your sin, you're the kind of person whose bones are going to waste away. You're going to rot away like a tree in a drought. You're going to have all kinds of problems. But there's another path, and that is the man who trusts in Yahweh, who recognizes that with God there's forgiveness. And what he finds is he's surrounded by unfailing love. This is that word I've mentioned in recent weeks and many times before, chesed, God's covenant love, covenant mercy, covenant 
faithfulness. And if we trust in Yahweh, if we trust in His mercy, His unfailing love surrounds us on every side. Rather than thorns and thistles, so to speak, that we are constantly running into, we're going to be running into grace. We're going to be running into mercy. We're going to be running into the unfailing favor of God. But that comes from trusting in Yahweh in believing that he is gracious and kind and forgiving. So you can see, this is why Paul said this psalm's about the gospel and our response of faith to God's mercy offered in Christ. Paul's bringing it up as he's talking about that we're justified by faith because the person who has faith, the person who trusts, openly confesses to Yahweh, receives his grace and mercy, is surrounded by his unfailing love. The other kind of person says, nope, no sin problem here. Everything's fine. And then we're left on our own. So what this does then, if we trust in Christ, openly confessing our sin, looking to him for mercy, we're surrounded by his unfailing love everywhere we turn, and this produces joy and worship as God forgives and cleanses us, forms in us a heart that is upright, firm, and steady. Notice that's what he says there in verse 11. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous, seeing all you who are upright in heart. Now again, he's not talking about people who don't ever sin. The entire psalm's been about his sin. So he's not suddenly taken a change and gone back and said, well, it's good to be me. I have no sin problem here. That would be the exact opposite of what he's been teaching the whole time. But what he's saying is, if you are made righteous in Christ, if you are declared just by the mercy of God, because of what Jesus has done for you, and you have received that, it produces an overflow of worship. My, my voice is actually struggling a little bit this morning because I was enjoying singing the gospel this morning. I was enjoying singing about all God has done. I was loving singing that my chains are, are off. I am free. Amazing grace. I was enjoying singing, the lamb has overcome. The lion has roared, and he has not roared judgment on you, but blessing, and welcome into my presence, and well done, good and faithful servant. That is the gospel towards us. That, when we recognize it, produces worship. So how do we apply this? What, what do we do with this psalm? What does it mean to us as believers? Two questions, and we're going to come to the table again this morning. First question the psalm should prompt is, am I experiencing the joy of forgiveness in Christ? Am I experiencing the joy of forgiveness in Christ? Now, first off, from everything I've said, but I'm going to reiterate it here, is there forgiveness found anywhere else? Jesus is not one path among many. To forgiveness. Because if you understand the trek we've been on and you see the depth of our sin, thinking there's some other way to forgiveness, some other way that I'm going to be okay, is a fool's errand. So first off is that part of that phrase, in Christ. Have you looked to Christ for forgiveness? There is no other way to receive that forgiveness. If you have not done so, I urge you with every fiber of my being, look to Christ. Receive the joy of forgiveness. Second thing, if even as a believer, does the reality of God's forgiveness permeate my consciousness? As a believer, 
Does the reality of God's forgiveness permeate, saturate, work through my consciousness? Now let me give a couple of questions to help you answer that question. When I sin, do I run from God or to God? Because friends, if when I sin, I run from God, God's forgiveness is not permeating my consciousness. My first thought then is, where's the bushes? Where's some fig leaves? And I'm acting like David did during that year. When I sin, do I run from God or to him? Second way to answer that question of whether God's forgiveness permeates my consciousness. Do I believe God defines me by my sin or by Christ's righteousness? Do I believe God defines me? God thinks of me. When God looks at me, does he see my sin or does he see the righteousness of Christ? Which do you think? Because to whatever extent I think, and what honestly is going on is, well, you know, I know there's a righteousness, but I think God sees this. I think God's disappointed. I think, then to that extent, God's forgiveness in the gospel is not permeating my consciousness. Something else is driving me. Let me ask another question that is part of this experiencing joy of forgiveness in Christ. As a believer, if I am in Christ, is my joy found in being the blood-bought, justified, adopted child of God? Or is my joy found in external circumstances? Because this is kind of a binary, either or. What determines my joy? That I am a blood-bought, justified, adopted child of God, and therefore I got joy no matter what's going on, or I have joy as long as things are going the way I want. When they're not, the joy comes and goes. If you are in Christ, you are God's adopted child, you are forgiven, you are free, and you are surrounded by his unfailing love, his chesed. As a Marine, we learned a phrase, uh, Chesty Puller led the Marines in Korea, and at one point, the Chinese had come in and they'd cut the Marines off, and the Marines were surrounded on every side. And Chesty Puller stood up and he told the troops, men, I've got some news. We got Chinese on the north, Chinese on the south, Chinese on the east, and Chinese on the west. There is no way they're getting away from us this time. Okay? Do you know you are surrounded by God's unfailing love, north, south, east, and west? If you are a child of God, wherever you turn, love of God, mercy of God, faithfulness of God, God's blessings on you. Do you know that? Do you believe that? And not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done. Do we know that? Do we understand that? If my daily focus is on my status as God's redeemed, forgiven, eternally loved child, then the effect of my external circumstances have a defined boundary. They can only have so much effect on my life. 
Not that there's no effect, but it's a circumscribed effect because I realize no matter what else, this can't be taken from me. Slay me, God will raise me from the dead. Curse me, God will bless me. It does not matter. Is that what is in my consciousness? So do I find myself focusing more on my unchanging status and place as God's child or on my shifting circumstances? Which, which is my mind turned towards during the day? Not just right now at this moment. I hope right now, in light of everything I've just been saying, I hope it's on your status as God's child. The question is, when's the afternoon? What's it going to be on? When your boss hassles you again, when spouse, child, neighbor, friend fail you again, when things are crashing around you, what will your focus be on? Your eternal status as the child of God or this thing that is not what you want it to be? How much does my joy fluctuate with changes in my circumstances? Because the more my joy fluctuates, the more it's a sign. And I'm not saying this is a word of condemnation. What that means is I'm putting my focus on my circumstances rather than what God declares to be true of me. How can Paul and Silas sing praise to God in the jail? Because they realize it doesn't matter. Lock me up. I'm still God's freed child. Declare me guilty. I'm still declared innocent by God. Slay me. He'll raise me. There's only so much that can happen to me here. Is that our focus? Now that'll lead to the second question, and then we'll come to the table, which is, am I building into a community of the joyfully forgiven children of God? In both Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, notice at the end of the psalm it turns outward. David begins with his confession of sin in Psalm 51, but then he turns outward and says, I'm wanting there to be this praise. I'm wanting Zion to be built up. I'm wanting all these other things to happen. In Psalm 32, here's what happened in my own life, and then God speaks to him and says, let me give you counsel for everyone else. Here's what you ought to do in light of that. They move from individual to community, and as a result of the confession of forgiveness. And this is because joy only reaches fruition. It only reaches maturity in community because you are created in the image of the triune God who eternally is divine community. You were made for community. And there is something, if you're honest and think about it, when we experience true joy, what's one of the first things we want to do? Tell somebody. That's what we want to do. We don't just try and hide it. We can't wait to see somebody and say, look what happened to me. Look, look what God did or look what I just won or whatever it is. We want to tell somebody the same thing as you. When we have experienced the joy of forgiveness, we want to tell other people. We want to be part of a community where that is celebrated. So can you name the people with whom you share your struggles whom you hear God forgives you for your sin and with whom you experience joy. I'm not asking, do you have this to me? Can you name the people? Do they pop up in your head and you say, these are people with whom I am doing that? Because if you can't, then the answer is no. I'm not experiencing that community. Which means my joy then is now bounded. It's stunted. Are you connecting with others? And one of the things I'm going to 
bring up here is, are you connecting with others in a small group? The first part of small group, it's only the, the pathway, the step to getting there, but it's where we build community with one another and we learn and we get to share this back and forth and talk and pray for each other and hear God's word through each other. Are you experiencing that? Because if we are not, this culture drives to isolation. It's one more way this culture is set against God and his ways, like pretty much every other culture out there. And that's one of the ways we express it is isolation. But that's not joy. So are we doing that? Now what we're going to do is we're going to come down today to this table of forgiveness and joy. And we've been focusing really the last three weeks on confession and repentance. Today, what I really want us to focus on is forgiveness received and joy experienced. It's not that if you have sin, don't confess it, don't worry about it. We always want to confess our sin. But what I really want the focus to be today is, friends, there is a forgiveness that brings joy. That's what the gospel is about. So as we're coming today, yes, confess sin, but I want the real focus today to be you're forgiven. And you're forgiven because his body was broken. And we can't go back to a time machine and have his body not be broken. You're forgiven because his blood was shed. And it was shed once and for all. And that means you and I have a security in our forgiveness that gives us joy. So I encourage you as you come to the table today to receive forgiveness, and let the joy of that permeate your consciousness and your soul. And I remind us that if you need gluten-free, you can just raise your hand and we'll get that to you. And also, if you are a visitor, you are welcome to join with us. If you believe the gospel, the very things I've been talking about today, please join with us. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that all of your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this all of you in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you for your mercy that is so great. And we thank you that it has been secured for us once and for all by our Lord Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, come. Come. And through this sacrament, freshly give us forgiveness and freshly fill our souls with joy. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As you get the elements, please hold on to them. And we will take them together in just a couple of moments. And I again encourage you to meditate and receive God's forgiveness for your sins. Father, in this season, we have seen the horror of sin. We have seen how it wreaked havoc in David's life, 
and we know all the destruction it has done in ours. Lord, we do not want it to be counted among the wicked and foolish who are deceived and hope to deceive you regarding their sin. So once again, we openly confess all we have done and all we have left undone. We do so openly, looking to you for your sure mercy in our Lord Jesus Christ, who took a body and became human for us and for our salvation, and whose body was broken that we might be healed, and whose body was raised so that we might be justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We give you thanks for our Lord Jesus Christ. Take and eat. Lord, this cup of the new covenant was given for the forgiveness of our sins. We rejoice today that through the blood of Christ we are forgiven, having all of our sins covered. We are cleansed, having all of our sins washed away. We are justified, having Christ's righteousness given to us as a gift. Lord, as we contemplate this, we sit before you in stunned joy. Who are we to be adopted in your family? Who are we that we should be joint heirs with Jesus Christ? Yet you have made us to be yours now and forever. Our place is secure, not by our works, but by Christ's blood, which has sealed the new covenant and every blessing of God for us forever. So, Father, we lift this cup and we give thanks for the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, take and drink. Father, now send us forth in the power of the Holy Spirit to live as the forgiven children of God. Where there is strife, may we bring peace as you have made peace with us. Where there is hatred, may we bring love, for you have loved us in Christ. Where there is unforgiveness, may we bring grace and mercy, for you have forgiven all of our sins in Christ. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus, the one who has removed all of our sin and who fills our hearts this day with joy. To the glory of the Father, in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. And God's people say, Amen. Let's stand together, and I encourage you to receive God's blessing, His benediction and word of blessing upon you. This is from the book of Jude, paraphrased. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, go forth full of the joy of being forgiven, blessed to be a blessing to everyone you meet. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.